Father, thank you again for the opportunity to hear your voice. These are the words of life, we are told. Lord, I pray that we embrace them as such. We pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit will work mightily in this activity of our worship today, the Word of God central to worship in the life of the church. So I pray for myself as I speak. I pray for those who are here who listen, that all of us will pray for application and transformation in our hearts as we hear these words. We again thank you for preserving these words for us that were written to people long ago, but yet they are words for us as well. So we ask you to be glorified by this exercise of proclaiming your word now, Lord. We, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we turn it down a little, just a little bit more? Thank you. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's just, I can just hear it in my ears. Can anybody, can everybody hear me okay? Good. Yeah, my voice is a little bit louder than everybody else's, I think, but. First John, chapter 3, or chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 10. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever, do, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
May God bless the reading of his word. Now, I've mentioned this book uh, a few times in my time when I was with you a few years ago. This is uh, just to give you a little uh, kind of background and to give you a little flavor of what this book is about, is that uh, the Apostle John, now a very elderly man, maybe have ri- maybe written this book sometime in the 90s, sometime after the the Gospel of John. And, and the context is very important to understand uh, why John is writing this, the occasion or the reason why John is writing this is because he is being, the churches and his followers are being surrounded or infiltrated by uh, heretics, false teachers, Uh, As we can see, the biggest problem here is uh, in the uh, verse 21 of chapter 2. You can see he says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but uh, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made us to us, eternal life. So we have what uh, Scholars talk about uh, this is a a precursor of Gnosticism, and I'm not going to go into great detail. You must have heard and may have heard about Gnosticism uh, sometime along the way. And and really, the most important thing at this time is that Gnostics believe that there is this secret knowledge of God, that there are enlightened ones. This this being born of God is, is really about being connected with God in a special way. And it wasn't for everybody. It was just for a few. And from that, they believed that anything material was evil and everything spiritual was good. So John is very concerned that this is infiltrating the teaching of of the people that he is concerned about. He's writing in Ephesus, and he's writing to these people and to the church in Ephesus, he is writing, and he is saying to them, be careful. As Paul wrote in, in the book of Acts, be careful, because when I leave, he says that there will be people coming in here who will be, they look like sheep, but they will be in wolves. They will really be wolves, he says to them. They're going to, they're going to be saying things and teaching you things that are not truthful. So John to get an understanding of where this book comes from, go to me to chapter 5 of of, of 1 John. And there is, uh, this encapsulates really the the entire book of, or the letter of 1 John, and how John presents the subject matter in this book. Follow along with me in chapter 5 of 1 John. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God 
when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, in there, you're going, you see three topics. One is, is that he says it's a topic or the test that John is giving them. This book is a book of, of, of tests, of, of, uh, of being able to meet requirements, being able to, to uh, be discerning. And John is writing this so that this letter will allow people who are followers to understand who they are, if they are in the truth, and to those who they may sit, be sitting next to or may be coming into the church, that if these people are orthodox, orthodox, good, sound doctrine, do they understand the gospel? Which is very important for us today because, again, many people have different, different uh, meanings and interpretations and understanding of what the, what the gospel is all about. So what we see here is that John gives three tests. We have a doctrinal test. Notice what he says here. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the first test is, do you understand who Jesus is? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Anointed One, the Christ? Because he says there are those out there who deny it. Certainly the Gnostics may, see that, may say that Jesus is God, but there are those out there who are saying that Jesus did not have a, did not have a body. There are those uh, heretics out there called Docetists who believed that Jesus had some sort of ghostly phantom kind of body. No way could God bring, put on evil flesh and hang on a cross. So we see that, that orthodoxy, we see that, that uh, John is concerned about the truth. As he's, I've read to you in the beginning, in, uh, the beginning of John, uh, the beginning of uh, the reading today in the second chapter of this book, and we just read it, read it through here now, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So that's a, a key marker. Do you understand who Jesus is? You need to understand. A person must be born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus in chapter 3. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So here's another test. It's the test of love. It's the test of fellowship. It's the test of community. You must love Jesus, and you must love the community. And then he says... By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So we have a doctrinal test. Who is Jesus? We have a test of do you love the body? Do you love other believers? Do you love the fellowship? And are you obedient? So there's a, a, uh, a doctrinal test, a test of morality, based on how you love, and a test of obedience. And that's where this letter is broken down. He breaks it down, and he talks about these throughout this book, 
doctrinal. Sometimes he interspersed them, but it's very important that we understand that that John is is laying it out there because he wants his readers to know who they are because it's important for them as they live their lives because you can be doctrinally sound, you can be obedient, but if your church has no love to it, it's pretty dead, is it not? That's one thing I love about this place, and I've always said how I have felt so much love in this church. And I've, this is one of the, the reasons why I wanted to come back, was because of this place and the fellowship. And I tell people, you are guests here, if you don't get mugged on your way out, there's something wrong. You're not at Hope Church. And that's, and that's the, I think, the sign of, of uh, as John gives us this test, that this is authenticity. This is an authentic Christian, a person who loves Jesus, understands their need for Jesus, understands they need to be born of him. They need to have be born again, that they need to understand orthodoxy, right thinking, because you need to be obedient, which leads to this, uh, uh, a word called orthopraxy, or, and you've heard, I've been, as I've been here before, I've, I've said that, is the right way of living. So if you understand the right doctrine, it will and should lead to right living. And that's where John is going to be talking about today. And if you do these, then you will want to love the body. You will want to love the community. You will want to be around God's people. It is not an option. John doesn't give us an option that we go to church or that we belong to a, commu a community of faith. It's not an option. It's a test that this is the real deal. You know, I just, this week we just, I just leased a new car. Well, if you go to a car dealer, they'll tell you, oh, and, and if you're looking at, at used cars, what do they say? Well, this car has gone through our tests and we've run 20 tests, points of tests, to make sure that this is a good car for you. And this is where John is saying there is a grid, there is a way of understanding from the Bible to understanding and letting yourself know the confidence that we need to know that we are children of God and that other people may not be. Now, it's not to say that there aren't people out there that are going to click on all three points and still may not know the Lord. But the fact is, is that those are the, th those are the things that we should be looking at ourselves and hold other to those standards as well. Not as a litmus test, but as a, just as, as we walk alongside one another. This is how we get to know one another, how we care for one another. This is how we should know who is in our church. This is why we interview people when they come to church, when they want to become members, when they want to become communicants, when they want to take the Lord's Supper. We want to know who you are. Because we want to protect the flock. And this is what John is very, very concerned about. What's, what I like about this passage, what I pick, why I picked this one, is because it reminds me of Christmas, when if you notice in here, there are six different times when the word appears, appears in this, in this uh, passage. 
And, and the, the first time is talking about Jesus appearing in the future. And that's from uh, 228 to 33. And then from 34 to, th- to, uh, to verse 10, that is now the reason why Jesus appeared. And so I think how appropriate it is for us at Christmas, you know, he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And, and uh, um, uh, there's another one that he says, uh, and, um, uh, nope, sorry, I had it in my head here about he, uh, Christ was born for this, and that's, uh, good Christian men rejoice, thank you, yeah, good Christian men rejoice, and Christ was born for this, so you figure why? Why do, why do we need this? Why did we need Jesus? Why do we need to know why he came? Because it helps us understand the beginning of the book and the end of the book. If we understand why Jesus came and the need for him to come, it changes how we understand Genesis through the book of Revelation. We need that lens to be able to give us a clear thought that this is a book of continuity. It is a book that is tied all together because it's all about Jesus. It's all about God's love for his people. How he saw us, how he created us, and how we fell, and how he redeemed us, and then the consummation. Those are the elements of the Bible that we look at. We see that the long span, we see creation, we see the fall, and the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, and that changes everything. But it isn't that God went, oh my goodness, how did that happen? He already has for us a plan of redeeming people that he desires to be his children. And so now we look at this first part, verses 28 through 3-3. And now little children abide in him, and he's talking about not just being close to Jesus, but grabbing on, embracing Jesus. So that when he appears, right, when he comes in the future, we may have confidence. Now these people are a little concerned because they aren't, they're, they're, I think, confused. John's conf- John is concerned that these people are confused because they're hearing people saying different things. So he said, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. It's just the opposite for those who love Jesus. It isn't that we're going to find ourselves ashamed when Jesus comes. We're going to applaud. We're going to fall on our knees. We're going to rejoice when we see Jesus coming. On the other side of the coin, we're going to, ha- we're going to see others who are going to try to find places to hide, are going to be so ashamed of Jesus coming because they don't know him. But then it will be too late. And you've heard me uh, say this uh, from this pulpit before my conversation that I had with my one of my bosses at a job when we the the offices that we had were all all glass and and you could see where it was on the ninth floor and you could see uh, the the scenery and the and the uh, horizon and you could see the clouds well this one day 
the clouds were coming in so heavy, and it was so thick, and it was so dark, I mean eerie dark, that it looked like it was something was going to have to happen. It was so black in the air, it was like 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that I got a text from my boss, who is from uh, another country, and we've had conversations about Jesus. Uh, we, and I think she's Hindu, Taoism, something. She's certainly not Christian. She had all kinds of different beliefs about spiritual things. And I used to talk to her about Jesus. And so I get a text from her, and she was sitting by the window, and she said, Jim, what would happen now if I saw Jesus coming? And my response was, you're too late. And she says, really? I says, yeah, you'll be too late. You need to do something now because when you see him, you're going to be ashamed because you're a sinner. You're full of guilt. You're a transgressor. You're disobedient to God. You've, breaking, you've broken his laws. It is not going to go well with you when you see Jesus. But for us, for those of us who have been born of God, for those of us who love Jesus, for those of us who can't wait for his appearing, who can't wait to see him, and like it says here, when we see him, we will then be glorified like him. We will not be in this body again. Thank the Lord. So that's why he is saying these people will shrink but you will not because you will have confidence if you are born of God. He says, if you know that Jesus is righteous, you may be sure that everyone, and other words in here are, it's not only uh, appearing, but the word everyone appears quite a few times as well. He says, he is righteous, who may, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And now he comes up with this word see or behold. And it's an imperative. And what's an imperative? A command. Look! He says, behold, see. Now this isn't a word that, that uh, uh, you know, is to be taken lightly. He wants us to embrace this. What kind of love? This word means this is not normal. It's, the word is almost, it's out of this world. It is foreign. What kind of land is this love from? That's what he's saying. What kind of love? Where does this love come from? It's nothing. It is so different. It is so foreign, foreign to us. He goes, what land does this come from? that the Father has given to us, or as the NIV I always love, with a kind of love that God has lavished. That sounds like, you know, just gravy falling all over the turkey, over the plate, right? You know me and my food, right? Just love, you just love, it just oozes over everything. It's lavished. There's no, there's, there's no stinginess at all. It's just, and it doesn't stop. And you don't want it to stop. You don't care if it falls on the table and the floor. You just love it. 
that we, he goes, this is the kind of love that God has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And how do we become children of God? Well, you know the beginning of the Gospel of John. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the privilege, the honor, not the entitlement, to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's how we become children of God. Not everybody born is a child of God. Only those who are born of God, only those who love Jesus, only those who have received the call from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit is that you need Jesus because you're a sinner and you fall upon your knees and you ask for forgiveness, then you are born of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And notice he says, and so we are. Don't listen to what every other person is telling you. Remember what the Bible says. Remember what Jesus said. Remember what I've taught you. If you are born of God, we are children of God. He wants to implant that in their head. Because it's important that you and I know who we are. The reason why the world does not know us, remember, where does this love come from? What world does this love come from? Well, the world's not going to know us because if we love him with the love that he gives us that's otherworldly, then the world is not going to know who we are. We are going to be peculiar weird, strange people. Now, not because you're that naturally, but because of that spiritually. And then he noticed the terms that he uses, little children, beloved. He's really, he loves these people. He wants to, he's teaching them. And what a great, great gift it is to be able to teach people that you love. And to Sit under someone who loves you. That's this reciprocation that's so profound in here, is that there is this genuine give-and-take love. He calls them beloved. He's their beloved because he just told them that we are the children of God. We are the same family. Amen? I know you're out there. I see you. Beloved, we are God's children now. We don't have to wait until he comes. Now we are God's children. And, and hold on to that now because when we get to the next part, it's going to be very important why now is now. God's children now, he says, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the gift that God has given to us called glorification. And God rejoices in our glorification. He is longing for the day for us to be glorified. 
Creation is longing for that day. He is, it is all waiting and crying out and longing for the children of God to get their new bodies and this stuff around us to be all recreated because sin has affected it as well as it has affected you and me. And then he says in everyone, in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now as a, a consequence of us being the children of God, being children of the king, we now need to act as if we are royalty, do we not? As one of my professors said, royal blood, royal behavior. And that's what, that's what John is saying to them. Everyone who hopes, everyone who does this, they're not going to, but everyone who does do this, everyone who hopes, has this hope, this hope of God appearing, this hope of Jesus coming, this hope of your transformation and my transformation, our hope of God sanctifying us, our hope of God glorifying us, that longing for that day when this is all going away, and as the, as the in Isaiah it says, every tear shall be gone, and every crying will be gone, and every pain will be gone, and every woe will be gone, and every worry will be gone. That's the day, he goes, and if you long for that day, then you need to behave and act a certain way. And that's what he's calling them, telling them to do, because those pre-Gnostics, those docetists, those heretics, those false teachers, if if, if uh, material and flesh is evil, they don't give a hoot, correct, about material things. They don't give a hoot about your body. They don't give a hoot how you live because you're enlightened. You're in the know. You're a knowledgeable person. You've been born of God. You've got a special connection with God. Who cares what we do with this life? So you can see how lives can run amok if you believe that junk. Right? Go on sinning. Let grace abound. And, and what does Paul said? Oh, God forbid. So he says, we now, knowing the future appearing of Jesus, is going to affect us and should affect us in such a profound way that we know how obedient Jesus was. We know how pure Jesus was. He says here, we need to begin, once we are born again, to understand that we now need to change our lives. And we need to behave and act in such a way that is a consequence of knowing now we have this new identity. If if you were coming back, well, I, I'll, I'll go to the CB, CBS News had a, a segment on this week about how these people, the, these uh, people in the Navy, men and women in the Navy were gone. I don't know if anybody saw that. They were gone for months, and they all came back to their family for the holidays. And they were gone for months. And so everybody was excited. And the, and the, and the, 
the, the children of the mothers that were gone and the, and the fathers that were gone and the husbands with the children of, the, of their wives that were on the ship, everybody was, they couldn't contain themselves. They were longing for that day. They were so excited, they were nervous. But you know what they did? They, they bought gifts. One guy bought an engagement ring. And, and when, when, he, when she got off of the ship, when he got off, when, the, when he got it and he had it on, his parents went to, went to Portugal, flew the ring to him when he was there so that he could have it with him on the ship so that when he came off the ship, he could propose to her on the dock. And this was this exciting time. But you realize these people made pref, uh, preparations. These people changed their lives longing for that day to come, did they not? They changed their schedule. They did everything. Now, just think if you just came home and my wife came home from being away and I would say, yep, here I am. Haven't brushed my teeth in three months. Haven't washed my hair in three months. Haven't taken a bath. Haven't changed the cat litter. Haven't picked up the dog droppings. Haven't mowed the lawn. Haven't cleaned the house. Haven't done a thing. Yep, I'm home. I'm so happy to have you home. <laughs> now, no one acts like that. And that's what, that's what he's saying here. If we long for the appearing, the future appearing of Jesus, because we are the children of God, we need to change our lives. We need to become, be, participate in that process called sanctification, becoming holy. Becoming pure like Jesus. And he wants to remind them of who they are as the spiritual children of God because when we forget that we are the children of God and we have amnesia about our identity, we fail to do what we're supposed to do. Turn with me. To Second Peter. Second Peter, just a few pages uh, before First John. Second Peter, listen to this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Again, my toes curl every time I hear that, because I cannot believe that's a gift that God has given to us, to be partakers of the divine nature, now that we've been born of God having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to su uh, supplement your faith with virtue, excuse me, virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brother affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, now you notice this is putting on something more. This is 
purifying ourselves. This is sanctifying our bodies. This is sanctifying our minds. This is sanctifying our lives. This is making us more like Jesus. If these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful, something we all long for in life, being unfruitful and ineffective. Every day we wake up for that, right? Oh, I think I'll be ineffective today. No, it'll help us from being ineffective and fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind and has amnesia about who he is. He has amnesia that he was cleansed from his former sins. When we forget that we are God's children, we don't work that hard. There's no motivation to do so. But that's why we have the fellowship. That's why we have the church to remind us that we are who we are. Right now, the children of God, through the cost of Jesus giving us his life, now notice in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. He's addressing these false teachers. You know that he appeared, who he? Jesus. He appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. He came to take away sins. What is that if Becoming pure and holy in your life is sanctification. When Jesus takes away our sins, that is justification. When he takes away our sins, that barrier, that wall, that which we, that separates us from the love of God has been taken away. The debt has been paid. Remember uh, second, uh, John, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God? He had no sin, but he gave us his righteousness so that we may become the righteousness of God? Jesus, in that transaction that took place, as we always talk about in Leviticus 16, of when the scapegoat, when he puts the goat and the goat is pushed away and is taking our sins far away from us, and then that other goat is sacrificed on the Day of Atonement and sprinkled in his bloodshed? That's who Jesus is. And so we are, our sins have been taken away. And so he says here, if you know that he appeared to take away your sins then that's how we should live our lives. Understand that justification is nice, but if it's not followed by sanctification, you have to take a blood pressure test to see if you're a believer. You've got to take your temperature. You better go to the doctor to find out if you're really born again. And that's where pastors and elders and other people in the church are here for each other to make sure that we are not being accused by the evil one and Satan who wants to take away our confidence in who we are. 
And so he says to that to these other teachers, he says, these people are lawless. And no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. What does that mean? You and I are sinners, folks. But we don't identify as ourselves as sinners anymore. We identify as ourselves as people who are Christians who have been forgiven for our sins, understanding that we need to continue to ask God for forgiveness. And that's in 1 John, as we did it in our reading today. Uh, turn with me to 1 John, the very first chapter. 1 John, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. So we can never say that we're perfect, even though there are sects within Christianity that believe in perfectionism. They believe that they read these verses and believe that they are perfect, that they have been totally sanctified. And John says, that can't happen. That's not the way it's happening. It doesn't happen that way. Oh, but it says that no one abides in him keeps on sinning. Well, the word here is, not, is, is, is meant to, as it says, to keep on sinning. A person who keeps on sinning is indifferent to sin. It doesn't make a difference to them if they're sinning or not. And that has no place within the life of a Christian. We should be very sensitive to our sin. It's not to say that you and I are, are never going to sin. You've sinned this morning. You have may have sinned here, sinned here this morning. You are certainly going to sin sometime today. Because that's our nature. We are not perfect. We are still struggling with the flesh. So he says, it isn't that, because he didn't want these people to say, think that, these, that you're perfect and that you don't need anything because the other people think they are perfect. And he says, no, no, it's no one who abides in him is indifferent to sin. We struggle with sin. It's good that you struggle with sin because before you became a Christian, you didn't care about sin. But now you do, which means that something is different about you. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Gnostics, docetists, you don't even know who Jesus is. You're speaking a mean gain, but if you don't love, if you don't think that you're a sinner, then you are a liar. You're making God a liar, and you don't even know yourself. And then he says here, little children, again, he goes to them, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness uh, is righteous as Jesus is righteous. That is our goal, to be like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, the Bible tells us. And, and notice now, he is talking about Jesus coming now. The reason why Jesus came was that we may have new life, that we may be born again, that we have a way to God, that our sins are forgiven, that the wrath of God is turned away, and we no longer have to worry about the sin that is against God. We no longer have to worry that God is angry with us 
because God can no longer be angry with us if Jesus has paid the debt of sin. That's why you heard me say that God can't love you any more now. God can't love you any more in the future than he loves you right now. And I hope that revolutionizes your life. He can't love you any more, ever, than he loves you right now. Why? Because we are in Christ. Jesus is our Savior. I am well pleased in my son, God says, follow him. That's why we need to abide in Christ. That's why we need to be closer to Jesus than anybody else in the world. The, notice he says, the reason the Son of God appeared the first time was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. He came to take care of the works of the devil. Now, folks, that isn't just now. That's for you to understand that is to understand the Bible. Let's do a real quick survey. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God, uh, Genesis chapter 3, yes. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. This is the seed of the woman. Offspring here is seed. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is what the, the Bible is about from beginning to end. It is about this conflict. When you read about uh, all the, 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 the Israelites and when you read about their wanderings and you read about their disobedience, when you're reading about their history and you see that they're obedient and they're not obedient, when you see... That, that the prophets say, we're going to send you a king. And, and you wonder, is God really going to send us a king? And then he realizes that he, that he gives you a king, and none of the, hardly any of the kings are any good. And you see this cycle, and you're saying, what is going on here? This is what's going on here. There is this battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that's ongoing through the very Bible. That's the conflict that we're in. That's what makes us see how God works through redemptive history to preserve you and me, preserve a people for himself, because the war is on between God, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so how do we know this is going on? Because let's turn to the book of Revelation. Pastor Nate talked about this. Chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. What's the first book of the Bible? Genesis. What's the last book of the Bible? Revelation. Everything else in between is all affected by this. Chapter 12, and a great sign appeared. And I'm not going into detail about this. 
A great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under his, her feet and her head a crown of the twelve stars. She was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dra red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven crowns, diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood... Before the woman who was about to give birth. This is talking about the coming of Christ the first time. Now necessarily this is not talking about Mary. But he's talking about Jesus being born. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she bore her child he may devour it. You see this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent goes on through the entire Bible. And it goes on when Jesus comes. And so you see, what, why, Satan hates Jesus. He hates the people of God. If you read the rest of chapter 12 and chapter 13 and 14, we see that the red dragon cannot devour the baby, so he goes after the church. He goes after the offspring. He goes after the descendants. He goes after the people of God. And so we see here that during Jesus' life, Satan did not want anything to go right with Jesus. So what does he do? What does Herod do? Kill all the firstborn. Do you not think that Satan was behind that? Then you think of Jesus talking about going to the cross. And what does Peter say? Peter, Jesus, don't let it happen. We don't want it to happen. How can it happen? May it not be so. And what does Jesus turn to Peter and say? Get behind me, Satan. Do you not think that this is the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? And then you see Judas. I mean, Satan tempted uh, uh, Peter. But Judas, the Bible tells us, that Satan entered in to Judas and he gave, because Judas didn't want, like Peter, he didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. And then we see the temptation in the, in the, uh, in the desert. We see Satan tempting Jesus. He doesn't say, don't go to the cross, Jesus. I'll give you everything you want. Don't go to the cross. And then what happens? Jesus says, gives him scripture. He goes, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then what does it say? Satan goes off and looking for another opportunity. And then we see in the book of Luke that during the Passion Week of Christ, as we're doing in our, uh, doing in our uh, sermons with Pastor Nate, it says now is the hour when darkness reigns. No, that's really talking about an hour. Only a period of time. But this is when it looks like darkness is reigning. It looks like Jesus is getting the raw deal and Satan is winning. You see, folks, that's the entire Bible. That's a picture of the Bible. It's the story of the enemy of the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that's what happens in our lives. That's where our battles are. Because we are children of God. And that's what he said here. Jesus came and appeared so that he may destroy the works of the devil. 
You see how important it was? If you didn't know and tie together Genesis to Revelation, you would have been very small in your understanding about the works of the devil. But now you see the scope of history that this has been taking place, and Jesus came to destroy all that. And then he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. God's seed abides in him, and we cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now notice we've had the appearing of Jesus in the future. We have the appearance of Jesus now. Notice who appears in these verses. Verse 10, by this it is evident who the children of God are. Or who the children of the devil are. Now the appearance is on us. Who do we appear to be? By this it is evident who the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does not practice righteousness. Who does not care about sin. Who does not worry about sanctification. Who does not struggle with sin. Who is indifferent to sin. Who compromises. Who doesn't believe that we need to do everything that the Bible tells us that we should do, is not a child of God, or indicates that they may not be a child of God. We need to get a test. You need a medical checkup, a spiritual checkup, to find out if you can ha-ha, or if you can blink an eye, or if you can allow this, the world to go on in sin as it is, and say, oh, why is the church, why are Christians so worried about abortion? Why are Christians so worried about same-sex marriages? Why are Christians, why are Christians, because God said so. That's why. Amen? He did. And if we aren't worried about that, then we need to get a test to find out if we're really people of God. But he says, for those who are concerned about holiness, we're going to struggle with sin, folks. This is a hospital. This place is a hospital for people who struggle with sin. Because you and I struggle with sin every moment of the day. Did God really say? Is God really good? Why would God give me this? Why does he allow this? Why do I need to look at that? Why do I need to feel like this? Our questioning God's goodness is all the time when we ask those questions. So you see how important it is that John is so concerned about the faith and about the spiritual health of the people of God that he gives them these tests. I hope you do. After all this energy I just exerted, After, after hopefully understanding this passage and going on to reading John and look for this doctrinal test and look for the test of love, look for the test of obedience, the morality test. This is why John says them from the beginning to the end, and I hope you read it that way so that you understand John as he's looking at history because the beginning of the Gospel of John says what? The Gospel of Sanjit said that the darkness could not overcome it. It's trying still. 
That's why we are the light of the world. This is why we are the light bearers of the gospel. This is why we reflect Jesus. And folks, I'm a miserable sinner. But I understand that I am. And I understand that I need tons of work. And I understand that I cry. And I go to the Lord and I say, God, what are you doing? What's going on in my life? Why are you allowing these things to go on in my life? But yet I know he loves me and he understands me as a child and he loves me in spite. Listen, he died for me. He had to know who I am. He had to know that I am a fickle person. He has to know that, and he knows who you are too, and yet he still loves you and me. That's why John says, I don't want you to forget. Whatever happens in your life, I don't want you to forget that you are the children of God now because of who Jesus is. So, let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we are amazed at the love <clears throat> that you have lavished upon us. We are amazed that in spite of knowing us so well, you died for us. And you know, even know before what we do, that you know that we're going to do it, and yet you... You don't withdraw any blessings. You don't withdraw your love from us. You don't withdraw your love for us because of Jesus. We can never lose our salvation. We thank you for that, Lord. What a great, great joy it is to know that we cannot lose our gift of eternal life. Lord, forgive us when we have spiritual amnesia about our identity. And we all do it day by day. So, Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you for this place. Thank you for the saints that are here that love us, love me through it all. Love us as we preach the word of God. Love us as we work together to grow in the understanding and the knowledge of who you are. Lord, we thank you for this great gift of Jesus. We do not deserve it at all, and yet we have it. So thank you, Lord. May you be glorified in our lives. May you give us the ability to say no to sin much more easily, Lord, as we pray that you will give us the strength because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Lord, thank you for giving us Christ. We pray this in his name. All of God's people said, amen.